Do you ever wonder if we're living in the end times? In Dr. Jeremiah's book, Where Do We Go From Here? He examines what Bible prophecy reveals about 10 phenomena happening in our world today. Order your copy this month, and if you give $75 or more, you'll also receive Dr. Jeremiah's entire teaching series on CD or DVD, correlating study guide, and his interview special on DVD. Order now at davidjeremiah.ca. That's davidjeremiah.ca. Why would you treat God like a last resort when He deserves first place in your life? Maybe you can't see it until He's all you have left. Today on Turning Point, Dr. David Jeremiah shares how this truth was evident in the life of young David as he was desperately running for his life. If you need help keeping God number one in your life, listen as David introduces the conclusion of his message, The Fugitive. You know, sometimes uh, we hear people say things like this. You know, Pastor, I've tried everything else. I don't know what to do. I guess the only thing left for me to do is to pray. And they act like prayer is the last resort when it should be the first resort. And I think David's life is an illustration of the difference between those two. And we're learning so much from watching him in this very um, difficult time in his life. We're going to get to part two of The Fugitive in just a moment. First Samuel 17 and 18 is the scripture. Here on my desk in the studio are copies of the beautiful study guides that have been prepared for this series. Um, as you know, this series runs for two months, uh, June and July. We have two study guides and two packages of CDs that will give you the entire life of David. We'd love to make them available to you. You can find out all about it by going to our website, which is davidjeremiah.org. You can get the book that we are offering during the month of June, The Focused Life, by just sending a gift to Turning Point of any size and saying, please send me The Focused Life, and it will be on its way to you. You're going to love this book, and you're going to use it, too, because it will it will pay dividends in your life when you read Psalms and Proverbs. Well, it's time for us to get into our lesson today, so without any further announcements, let's finish up this week with part two of The Fugitive, The Life of David, 1 Samuel 17. Saul tries to kill David, and once again David gets out. Now, what happens is he goes home. He's now married to Michael, Saul's daughter. And after he goes home, we are told that while he's at home, verse 11, Saul sends messengers to David's house to watch him, to slay him in the morning. And Michael, David's wife, told him, saying, in my vernacular, David, if you don't get out of here tonight, tomorrow you're dead. So Michael let David down through a window, and he went and fled and escaped. And Michael took an idol and laid it in the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair for his bolster and covered it with a cloth. And she's trying to buy some time for David to get away. And when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, well, he's sick. He can't come. And Saul sent the messengers again to see David, saying, bring him up to me in the bed, and I will slay him. And when the messengers were come in, behold, there was an image in the bed with a pillow of goat's hair for his bolster. And Saul said unto Michael, why have you deceived me so and sent away mine enemy that he has escaped? Now listen to Michael, this lying woman. And she said, David said to me, let me go or I will kill you. Now wait a minute, is that how it happened? 
Now, what we have going on here, please note, and some of you are going to say, I don't blame Michael and I don't blame David for how they're dealing with Saul's anger. But what we have going on here, we have some people who are manipulating their own circumstances instead of putting their trust in God. And I want to remind you that this is the same David who just a few short weeks earlier had stood in a valley all by himself with no support system at all. His enemy was there as tall as he could stand and all David had was a slingshot in his hand and the power of an almighty God. And David said, I do not come to you in my own power, but I come to you in the name of the God of Israel, the Jehovah that you have blasphemed. And in the power of that moment, he was victorious. Now, he's at home with his wife. And there are a few angry soldiers outside who've claimed to come for him. And all of a sudden, what we have is this admixture of God and human manipulation kind of coming together. David does not behave as he believes. Now go back to Psalm 59. What does David really believe? He believes God is able to deal with his enemies. This is what he writes. Deliver me from mine enemies, O my God. Defend me from them that rise up against me. Deliver me from the workers of iniquity. Save me from the bloody men. For lo, they lie in wait for my soul. The mighty are gathered against me, not for my transgression, not for my sin. O Lord, I haven't done anything. They run and prepare themselves without my fault. Awake to help me and behold. Thou therefore, O Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, awake to visit all the heathen. Be not merciful to any wicked transgressor, Selah. Now here's what he's describing. They return at evening. They make a noise like a dog. And they go around about the city. Behold, they belch out with their mouth. Swords are in their lips, and who say they doth hear? But thou, O Lord, shall laugh at them. Thou shalt have all the heathen in derision. Because of his strength will I wait upon thee, for God is my defense. The God of my mercy shall prevent me. God shall let me see my desire upon mine enemies. Slay them not, lest my people forget. Scatter them by thy power. Bring them down, O Lord, our shield. For the sin of their mouth and for the words of their lips, let them be even taken in their pride and for cursing and lying which they speak. Consume them in wrath. Consume them that they may not be. And let them know that God ruleth in Jacob unto the ends of the earth. And at evening let them return and let them make a noise like a dog and go around about the city. Let them wander up and down for meat and grudge if they be not satisfied. But I, I will sing of thy power. Yea, I will sing aloud of thy mercy in the morning. For thou hast been my defense and refuge in the day of my trouble. Unto thee, O my strength, will I sing. For God is my defense and the God of my mercy. And I couldn't help as I read that wondering... If David sang that song as he was climbing down the rope out of Michael's window. Seems rather incongruous, doesn't it? How can he be trusting in God and manipulating events with lies and deceit? You say, Pastor Jeremiah, are you saying that David could have stayed in that house and trusted in God as he said he believed? Not resorted to the manipulative methods of deceit and God would have cared for him? Well, if any man in the face of the earth had reason to believe that, it seems to me David did. He had seen God do miraculous things. He had seen God's faithfulness. In fact, I think it's very interesting 
that immediately after this little episode, there's another little vignette of how God deals with problems for those who put their trust in him. Saul comes after David, and of course he escapes because of the manipulation of Michael and the deceit. And he goes off to see Samuel. And Saul comes and he says, you know, he's deceived by his own daughter and he's very upset. And he said, why did you do this? Where's David gone? And they said, well, we think he went up to Naoth to to be with Samuel. So we read, and it was told, Saul, verse 19, behold, David is at Naoth in Ramah. Now watch how God takes care of his own. And Saul sent messengers to take David. And when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying... And Samuel, standing as appointed over them, now watch this, the Spirit of God was upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. Now you talk about incongruity. The messengers of Saul are about as qualified to prophesy as some pagan you'd get off the streets of El Cajon downtown. They are not godly people. They are not walking with God But what does God do? In order to protect David, when they come upon the prophesying of these who are with David and with Samuel, they are caught up into the whole mystery of it, and they start prophesying too, and they forget the purpose of their errand. So they go back, and Saul sends somebody else, another group, and they come, they see the prophesying going on, and the same thing happens to them. And a third time it happens. And so finally Saul said... I'll go myself. If you want to get something done around here, you got to do it yourself. So Saul marches up to that same place. Now watch what happens. He went thither to Naoth in Ramah, and the Spirit of God was upon him. And he went on and prophesied till he came to Naoth in Ramah. In fact, did he prophesy, he stripped off his clothes and prophesied before Samuel in like manner and laid down naked all day and all night which is why they say Saul's among the prophets. And watch what it says in verse 1 of chapter 20. And David fled from Naoth and Ramah. How did he do that? God did that. God took care of him. David is now back under the protective care of God, and God intervenes. If we will let God do it, God will care for us, and that's what he is trying to teach David. He is trying to teach David what his support system really is. Do we ever learn that? Does it ever come to pass in our lives that we can come to a place where we can fully trust in God? I remember hearing the story of Martin Luther when he was being hunted down by the Roman prelates for his great stand in the Reformation. And some of Martin Luther's friends uh, hired a fortress that overlooked the Rhine River and took Martin Luther up there and put him there to keep him safe. And after Martin Luther was there for a few days, he wrote to his friend Philip Melanchthon. And he said to Philip, he said, Philip, oh Philip, everything is lost. There is no hope even up here. And after two or three days, Martin Luther got tired of being fortressed in a human fortress. And he walked out of that place back into the mainstream of humanity without any protection at all and wrote the hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, a bulwark never failing. Martin Luther said, I'm not going to trust myself to the human devices of people who will protect me. I've got a device that's better than that. That is God. 
Now, please hear me. Sometimes God uses human means to help his people. You've all heard the story about the man who was going through a flood in his town. And he climbed up on the top of the roof of his house because the water was rising. He was a very godly, devout man. And he prayed to God and seemed to hear God say, I'm going to deliver you. So as the water continued to rise, some of the flood people came by in boats and they said, son, you better get in this boat. The water's continuing to rise and you haven't got much longer. He said, no. He said, I don't have to get in this boat. He said, God's going to save me. The boat went by and the water kept going up. Finally, he climbed up on top of the chimney. He's sitting on the chimney and the next boat comes down. He said, boy, you don't have many more minutes. You better get in this boat and let us save you because the flood's coming and it's going to be all over for you before long. He said, no, I don't need to trust in your boat. God promised me that he's going to save me. He was not gone long before the water was now at the very top of his last perching place and a helicopter came over. And the voice came down from the helicopter, you better let us send a ladder down and get you out of there. You're going to drown. He said, no, thanks. God said he'd deliver me. I'm all right. About a half hour later, he drowned. And when he got to heaven, he was pretty upset. He said, God, I trusted in you, and I proclaimed my faith widely to everybody who would listen. And here you let me drown, and it's embarrassing to me, but I think it'd be embarrassing to you. And God said, I'm not embarrassed. I sent you two boats and a helicopter, and you didn't recognize them. <laughs> you know, that's the way it is. Sometimes God uses human means, doesn't he? But sometimes God wants us to be purely and totally and absolutely dependent upon him, plus or minus nothing. And especially when you're trying to train to be a king, you need to learn how to do that. And that's what God is teaching David. Well, there's one third lesson, and then we're finished. And that is that when you're in the pressure cooker and you're under fire and the enemy is circling in and closing in on you, you not only learn that when you have a promise from God, you don't have to prove anything. And when you've known the faithfulness of God, you don't have to fear anything. But you learn also that when you've known the fellowship of God, why well, you can even handle losing a friend. Not easy. And I want you to note again that God is really dealing with David to isolate David to the total dependence upon him that he requires of those who will serve in places of great influence. I think one of the great stories of the Bible is the story of David's relationship with Jonathan. There's an awful lot here in this section that we don't have time to read, but in the 19th chapter, verses 1 through 7, Jonathan intercedes for David before his own father. Jonathan goes to Saul and he begs in behalf of David. And Saul agrees that David's an okay guy and he lets him come back to the kingdom. And he's back in the palace for a while before David goes out and kills everybody from the Philistines. And Saul has another fit of rage and David has to leave. After you get out of the 19th chapter, you come over to chapter 20. And you see David again running from Saul, first part of the chapter. And he and Jonathan make a covenant together. And David is trying to find out whether it's all right for him to go back to Saul's kingdom and back into the palace. And so David and Jonathan cook up this little scheme to find out what the temperature of Saul's anger really is. 
beginning about the fifth verse, David tells Jonathan that it's going to be the new moon tomorrow, and that's the time when he would sit at meet with the king. But he's not going to be there because he's still not sure whether Saul is going to try to kill him. So he said, Jonathan, listen, you go back and you sit at meet with your father. And when he asks, or if he asks where I am, you tell him that I've gone to Bethlehem to sacrifice. And if he says, well, that's okay, and he's not upset about it, then I'll know that it's safe for me to come back. But if he gets angry, you know, I'm not going to be there for three days. If he gets angry, you come and tell me, and I'm not coming back at all, because I'm not walking back into that situation again. So David and Jonathan decide that's how they're going to do it. And David asks a very tactical question. He says, how am I going to know what he answers? And that's when Jonathan comes up with this scheme that he would go out into the desert where David was hiding and he would shoot his arrows. And if he shot them in a certain way, that meant don't come back. If he shot them in another way, that meant come on home. And David was to wait in this special place until he got the signal from Jonathan. Jonathan goes back and he sits down to eat with his father and his father says, where's David? And uh, Jonathan said, well, he's gone to Bethlehem to sacrifice, and Saul hit the ceiling. He was wroth, angry, upset, and he was more determined than ever to kill David. In fact, if you want to see the level of his hostility, he even tries to kill his own son, Jonathan, because Jonathan is David's friend. That's how sick Saul is with anger and jealousy. So now Jonathan goes out into the wilderness and he knows what to tell David. He's going to shoot his arrows in the way that he had before told David they would be shot if he wasn't to return. So he shoots the arrows and the young lad who collects the arrows comes back and Jonathan gives to the young lad the arrows that he's collected and he gives him all of his archery equipment and he says, go back into Jerusalem, I'll be back shortly. He wanted to talk to David. Now watch what happens. Turn over in your Bibles to verse 35 of chapter 20. Actually, get down to verse 41, because I've told you the last uh, four or five things in the first few verses. And as soon as the lad was gone, David arose out of a place toward the south and fell on his face to the ground and bowed himself three times. And they kissed one another and wept one with another until David controlled himself. And Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, for as much as we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, the Lord be between me and thee, and between my seed and thy seed forever. And he arose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. And I need to say to you that I have a hard time controlling my emotion when I read that, because apart from one brief encounter, that was the last time David and Jonathan were ever together. Now will you stop for a moment and just take inventory of what's happened in David's life? His relationship with King Saul that once was a wonderful relationship has now been totally decimated. It's gone. I don't know what his relationship was like with Michael, but that's over. His best friend Jonathan's been taken away from him. He's not going to see Jonathan at all. And you say, what is God doing in David's life? Well, let me ask you to turn to one more psalm. Can I do that? Psalm 63. This is a bit later in David's life than this particular point, but it illustrates it. It is another teaching psalm, and the, the ascription to the psalm says, a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. Do you realize what's happened to David? He's been isolated from everything that he depended on 
All of it's gone. And now he's in the wilderness, and this is what David is writing and what he's praying. O God, thou art my God, early will I seek thee. My soul thirsteth for thee, my flesh longeth for thee in a dry and thirsty land where no water is, to see thy power and thy glory, so as I have seen in the sanctuary. Because thy loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise thee. Thus will I bless thee while I live. I will lift up my hands in thy name. My soul shall be satisfied with marrow and fatness, and my mouth shall praise thee with joyful lips. When I remember thee upon my bed and meditate on thee in the night watches, because thou hast been my help, therefore in the shadow of thy wings will I rejoice. My soul followeth hard after thee, thy right hand upholdeth me. But those that seek my soul to destroy it shall go to the lower parts of the earth. They shall fall by the sword. They shall be a portion for foxes. But the king shall rejoice in God. Everyone that sweareth by him shall glory. But the mouth of them that speak lies shall be stopped. What's happened to this young man? Do you see it? Isn't it clear? God has little by little taken the other things out of his life upon which he depended And now as he's alone with his God, he has come to know the meaning of total, absolute dependence upon Jehovah for his strength. Now, I want you to not misunderstand me. Please do not allow my words to seem like pious words of an uninvolved man. I don't underestimate the pain and disappointment of illness and suffering I do not pass lightly, believe me, over the stabbing sickness of a wayward child. I do not take glibly the dashed hopes of family ties that once were strong and now are weak or perhaps even broken altogether. I am not out of touch with the loss of self-respect when the pink slip is handed out at work. But I am here to say... As God taught David, when you know God's promises, you have nothing to prove. When you know God's faithfulness, you have nothing to fear. And when you know God's fellowship, you can handle even the loss of a friend. It's one way of saying what God tries to say in all of our lives in which we learn so hard. God is enough. And sometimes the only way we can learn that is when he reduces us in our hopes and in our helps to God alone. And all we can say as we look up from the discouragements and disappointments is, one thing I know for sure, and that's the only thing I can say for sure, is that is that God is, that God loves me, and he doeth all things well, and my trust is in him. I ask of God that he should give success to the high task I sought for him to do. I ask that every hindrance might grow less and that my hours of weakness might be few. I ask that far and lofty heights be scaled and now I humbly thank him that I failed. For with the pain and sorrow came to me a dower of tenderness in act and thought and with the failure came a symphony of insight which success had never brought. Father, I had been foolish and unblessed if thou hadst granted me 
my blind request. We all want the easy way, don't we? We'd like to opt out of God's plan for purifying his own. But David didn't get off easy, and neither will we. It is the age-old question that we have to debate, not, Lord, why have you done this? But, God, what are you trying to teach me in the midst of it all? Amen. Amen. You never go through a crisis as a believer that you don't come out with some lifelong lessons that help you to be better going forward. And of course, also you gain the opportunity to be equipped to help others. We uh, encourage others with the encouragement that we ourselves have received. That's what the Bible says. So if you're going through a tough time, uh, try to see it from a different perspective. God is trusting you. He's training you. He's getting you ready for whatever it is he has for you to do. Today we have uh, finished our discussion of the fugitive, and uh, it's Friday, so I want to remind you again of the importance of the weekend. The weekend is for going to church, and at our church we have Saturday night services and two on Sunday mornings, so I live in the church on the weekend. It's my favorite time of the week. I hope you go to church, not at home, not in front of your TV, but get up and go to church and be a part of what God is doing in your assembly. We're on television. You can find us, not when you're supposed to be in church, but later. And uh, we'll see you next week as we continue our study of the life of David. Today's message originated from Shadow Mountain Community Church and senior pastor, Dr. David Jeremiah. If Turning Point is helping you to grow your faith, please share it with us by writing to Turning Point for God of Canada, P.O. Box 18098, RPO, Sawasan, Delta, B.C., V4L2M4. Visiting our website at davidjeremiah.ca slash radio or calling 800-946-4300. Ask for your copy of The Focus Life, a month of daily readings from Psalms and Proverbs in a beautiful leather-bound book, yours for a gift of any amount. You can also stream more than 1,200 of Dr. Jeremiah's messages on demand with our streaming service, Turning Point Plus, all for a monthly gift of any amount. Visit turningpointplus.org for details. This is David Michael Jeremiah. Join us Monday as we continue the series, The Tender Warrior, on Turning Point with Dr. David Jeremiah. All we do each day, Dr. David Jeremiah and Turning Point work to make a global impact for the kingdom of God. But we can't do it alone. That's where Bible Strong Partners come in. These loyal monthly supporters form the foundation of Turning Point, allowing Dr. Jeremiah to teach the whole counsel of God. Partnering with Turning Point enables you to share in the eternal impact of this ministry, leading people to Christ through our media and printed resources, multiplying Bible teaching broadcasts, presenting the gospel around the globe, and strengthening the saints. In appreciation for your partnership, Turning Point wants to provide you with exclusive monthly resources and study guides, member-only communications, an on-demand library of study content, and so much more. Are you ready to see what the Lord will do? Let's expect to change the world together. Go to davidjeremiah.ca slash BibleStrong to become a BibleStrong partner today. That's davidjeremiah.ca slash BibleStrong. Someone described the last four centuries this way. The 17th century was the century of mathematics. The 18th century was the century of natural sciences. The 19th century was the century of biology. And the 20th century was the century of fear. 
no doubt due to two world wars and the invention of nuclear weapons. So what will characterize the 21st century? So far, it still seems to be the century of fear, even greater fear than the 20th. Personally, I'm making it the century of hope, the blessed hope of the second coming of Jesus Christ. Perhaps you'll join me in that hope. This is David Jeremiah encouraging you to get on the road to new life. Discover God's reasons to hope on Route 66. Route 66, driving the word home. Log on to Route66life.com. Start your journey home today.